Um, we have uh, three uh, speakers um, for our final session of the afternoon. I'm going to introduce all of them in alphabetical order uh, right now and then turn things over to them. Robert Beck is professor and chair of the Department of Computing Sciences here at Villanova. Dr. Beck's research interests include advice-giving systems and user system interface, methods uh, uh, for user-oriented system evaluation and biological systems modeling. He is author of Computing and the Understanding of Text, The Interdependence of Disciplines, Computer Science as a Full Partner, and Computer Science, a Core Discipline of Liberal Arts and Science. Dr. Beck teaches courses on human-computer interaction and the interface of computing and biology. He received his doctorate in mathematics from the University of Pennsylvania. Noel Kamoli is assistant professor of chemical engineering in the Department of Chemical Engineering and director of the Biomaterials and Drug Delivery Laboratory here at Villanova. Her research interests include nanoparticles for inhaled drug delivery and following spinal cord injury and thin film delivery of anti-inflammatory agents. Dr. Kamoli received her PhD from Drexel University. Uh, Professor Lawrence is the Principal uh, Sustainability Fellow in the Villanova College of Engineering and holds an adjunct faculty position in the core curriculum in sustainable engineering. He has over 43 years of experience in the field of environmental and sustainable engineering. Recently, he co-developed the MS curriculum in sustainable engineering. He's worked for 16 years for Sun Oil Company at the refinery and corporate levels. For the last 27 years, Professor Lawrence has been a partner and co-founder of Environmental Resources Management. He helped grow this company into a global consultancy with over 3,500 employees. He's actively involved with sustainability issues, including consulting assignments with a variety of multinational corporations. Please join me in welcoming our panel of speakers. So we're each going to take turns. We each have about 15 minutes or so on our individual areas. Uh, and then we'll open it up to all three of us back up here for discussion. So uh, since my area is biomedical engineering, I kind of focus on the Christian context for bioengineers. So I wanted to start with what I'm, exactly I mean by bioengineering and what some of the current challenges or moral and ethical dilemmas that might come up in bioengineering. So some of the hot topics would be uh, organ replacement, the need for new organs, different vaccinations, genetic therapy, um, tissue engineering, the vast amount of pharmaceuticals and drug manufacturers that are out there, and uh, human-computer interfaces, which I'm not really going to get into. I'll let Dr. Beck tell you more about that since that's his specialty. So the way I like to introduce this to my students and the way I like to frame this reference for myself is to remember there's three main stakeholders in any of these uh, issues that come up. First we have the patient themselves and their needs, their desires. Then we have the doctors and nurses, their needs and desires for wanting to do the best for the patient. Sometimes it overlaps with what the patients want, sometimes it doesn't. And the final one, Sure. Into the mic. It's on the podium. It's on the podium. It's right here. The flat. Oh. Yeah. All right. 
Um, and the final one is myself, the engineer, in this situation. So my uh, driving forces and goals going into solving one of these problems might be different from what the patient is looking for or what the doctor is looking for. And what I propose is the way that these all overlap is that Christian context. So by keeping it in the Christian context, I'm keeping everyone's best interest at heart, and I'm always staying in the middle of that Venn diagram there. So just a little background of what uh, patients today usually desire, and I thought this cartoon was kind of appropriate. It says, I'm all for disclosure, doc, but your NASCAR outfit makes me queasy. So if you've been to the doctor's office and they still allow the pharmaceutical reps in, you'd understand where this is coming from. Um, so the patients today really want things that are quick, they want it easy, they want it painless. Um, they're more informed, and I put informed in brackets because they're informed by commercials. They're told by TV and marketing that they need this drug and it's going to make them better. They're told they can expect they can get a new hip and they'll be up and walking in a week because this person did in the commercial. They read on WebMD and they feel that they're the expert. So sometimes it's good that they're more informed, but sometimes it's a challenge then for the doctor um, to re-inform them of what they might be misinformed on. They also feel that there's a pill for anything right now, so they want that quick, easy solution. The doctors, however, have always had the Hippocratic Oath. This started with Hippocrates back in about the 5th century BC. He was considered the father of all Western medicine. And it's a big, long document, and if we summarize it, basically it's saying, above all else, the doctors should do no harm. They should do what they can for the patient, not more than they can, and it should never cause the patient harm. Um, an excerpt that I thought was especially interesting from the modern version of this is here. It says, most especially must I tread with care in matters of life and death. If it is given to me to save a life, all thanks. But it may also be within my powers to take a life. This is an awesome responsibility which must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. And above all, I must not play God. So I, I find that comforting to know my doctor swore to that oath before I went into his office. And then there's the engineer's goal. And as an engineer, um, if you're not familiar, we're trained to optimize. Everything should be at its optimal solution at all times. So we're always taught to design for what is known as the greater good. This greater good has certain constraints. So we're looking for um, it to be the most profitable, but it should be within certain regulations by the government, certain codes. We, we want good science. We do cost-benefit analysis. We stay within the limits of our knowledge. Um, we follow by the National Society of Professional Engineers Code of Ethics. And especially in drug or biomedical device design, we also always want to do more good than harm. However, these don't always all overlap. 
So keeping the, the best interests at heart to make all of these interests overlap, we try to follow the Christian context, or at least I do myself, and that's to seek the common good. So the difference in the common good and the greater good is instead of just having that cost-benefit analysis for your company, for this product, for those specific patients, you have to take all people into concern in the common good. So in the common good, humans are created by God to live in social unity. Therefore, the good of each person individually relies upon the good of the community at large. So I myself can't be a good engineer if I'm not creating the best good for all individuals out there. So some other, um, these are from meetings from in the Vatican and specifically for the Catholic Church. But they, uh, I think, are common to any kind of Christian belief. So these are some quotes. Um, any adjustment between wages and profits must take into account the demands of the common good of a particular country and the whole human family. So what the Pope is saying there is you really need to take in your cost-benefit analysis and make one of those costs that you're looking at the cost of all human life. Not just the sick patient, but everybody. Uh, and also another test that they say that you can use as the engineer is the moral test of society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. So the Catholic Church suggests to its uh, members that using the poor would be a good evaluation tool. So as an engineer designing, if I design a wonderful medication but it's only available to those that can afford it, I might be serving the greater good but I'm not serving the common good of all people. So I had two examples to kind of illustrate what I mean with these different um, backgrounds. So the first one is vaccines. So from the patient's desire, they want it to be safe. They want it to be easy to take. They obviously want it to be inexpensive. That's somebody here in the US. What if this is a patient in a third world country where they might not make it to the hospital. They might have the baby and might not have any newborn care. Or maybe they make it in to deliver the baby and they're sent right back out. Um, on the doctor's side, for the same reason, because the patient might be in and out and might not be there that long, they want it to be a single dose. They don't want to have to repeat these vaccines because they're afraid the patient won't come back, can't afford to come back. And they want to be able to do it immediately after um, a child is born, or maybe even before the child is born. So uh, in the Christian context for an engineer, there's several companies that have come up with some solutions to find a way to vaccinate more people. So the easiest one is Merck, Novartis, and some other companies have a large nonprofit part of their pharmaceutical business and where they manufacture vaccines and just give them to third world countries for no profit, just donation. Another one that's a newer one, if you're familiar with um, strep B testing, it's something they'll test a mother and a, a newborn for right after they're born. If you're lucky to live in a country like the US like we do, if they find out 
your child has Step B, they can vaccinate them within those first two days you're in the hospital, there's no problem. If you weren't living in a country with such great health care, you went into the delivery center, you had the baby, you're back out, by the time you realize it's too late. So what Novartis has done is they're developing a vaccine that would vaccinate the mother when she came in, and it would pass right through the mother, through the placenta, into the baby. So they kind of found a step around this to ensure that everyone would be covered with this vaccine. Uh, and my second example is artificial organs and joints. So this goes into patients think now, especially based on commercials, if an organ or a joint has failed, it, we can create a replacement part for them. So uh, the doctor's first choice still, if you ask a medical doctor, would be to have a donor for an artificial organ. Because the human body still makes better organs than we as engineers can design. However, they're not readily available. Uh, there's long lists, depending on which type of organ we're looking for. So there's a really big shortage here. And most doctors are limited to treating just the symptoms and making the patient more comfortable. So the engineer can step in then and fill that gap for more replacement parts. So what we um, as engineers in the field have come up with is replacing the function when we can. So instead of just replacing an entire part, they've come up with dialysis designs for hemodialysis units. They've come up with heart-lung machines, portable heart-lung devices to try and keep people going. Um, and they've also come up with, or are trying to come up with some replacement parts when possible. So the picture in the top shows um, artificial joints, like an artificial hip would be an example. And the picture on the bottom, most people are probably familiar with, is one of the most popular attempts at the artificial heart. So that's what I have for my examples, and I can talk to you more about them after my other two panelists come up. Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm Bill Lorenz. Can you hear me in the back okay? Okay. Um, I want to talk with you about the concept of sustainability and, and give you some sense of our new sustainable engineering program at Villanova. And, and I also want to challenge us all to think about these issues from a personal perspective as well as a religious perspective. Um, you, many of you have probably heard about sustainability. It's been around as a term for about 25 years. It was coined by a UN commission. And what it really means is that we will live today, our generation, those of us who are alive today, in a way that we will meet the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. In the first decade of people rolling this out, they thought more about environmental insults, environmental degradation issues. But I think in the last 
15 years especially, people have really realized it's a social and economic and moral and ethical and religious issues. We live in a world where a billion people don't have access to water on a regular basis. I'm sure each of you has your own statistics on all the crime needs we have in the world. So we already live in a world that can't meet everyone's needs. So how can we possibly think about future generations? It's an intergenerational equity issue. And I do believe it's fundamentally a religious issue. And it starts with each and every one of us and with the way we practice whatever religion we follow. So I do think there's a very central religious issue, and I hope we can have some dialogue on this in a few minutes. So what issues are involved with sustainability? It's clearly a factor in what you've probably heard of as climate change or global warming or greenhouse gases. I like to term it climate disruption. Man is disrupting the environment, the climate in the world. We could, we could argue on details. We could argue when it's going to really hit. But I think the very, very strong consensus is that it is here, it's going to get worse. And for those of you, especially the students in this room, it is going to impact your life. Um, and it's going to impact my grandchildren's life and your children's life. We're losing our forest. We have deforestation. I'm sure you've all seen the pictures of the, the uh, Amazon rainforest on fire. People are, are so poor that they burn the forest they raise crops for two or three years, the topsoil washes away, and they end up with nothing. And they move on and they burn another 10 acres. And they keep constantly burning uh, tremendously biodiverse and important uh, parts of the world. Uh, we're losing our land. We have tremendous topsoil runoff. Uh, there's very, around the world, there's not that many more acres of arable land that are available to us. We're losing our fresh water. We hear about that all the time. You know, I was at the walk for the Wasala yesterday on campus that the engineering school and the nursing school have been sponsoring. And, uh, you know, again, it's that billion people who don't uh, have ready access to water. Uh, marine fisheries. Every major fishery in the world is degraded. Some of them are below <coughs> critical mass. There's some very strong discussions around uh, impacts of that going forward. We started a huge new business called aquaculture. That, uses, that grows fish in either freshwater or saltwater environments. There's significant impacts around that so that there's no free lunch in the fisheries area. Toxic and persistent pollutants. As a chemical engineer, uh, I and my colleagues, and I graduated in 68 from Villanova, and we jumped on this whole organic synthetic chemical bandwagon. We created the DDTs and the other organic synthetic chemicals and inorganic synthetics that have led to major problems. We all don't know what the implications are yet. Um, biodiversity, we're in the sixth or seventh major extinction that we've been able to find. It's the only extinction caused by our species. All the other extinctions were caused by nature. We are overusing nitrogen fertilizer. Man now fixes more nitrogen for fertilizers and other chemicals than all of nature does. <coughs> So where we are right now is a point in time where we are significantly contributing to the degradation of the environment. There was a very important study, any of you want to take a few minutes and look at it, it's called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessments, readily available on the web, it was done right at the turn of the 21st century. 
and it showed that of the 24 categories of ecological services that help man, 15 of them are already degraded. It was a study last year, again a very important study out of the Stockholm Resiliency Group, that showed there's really nine limits that can be quantified in on Earth. And we're already exceeding four of them, and we're coming close on the others. So we're at a point in time where unless we find a way of, of getting beyond these issues and, and starting to live in a way that we're not dominating the Earth, that Earth is not just for us, that we're part of the Earth, we are going to have real problems in the future. I'm not up here today to talk doomsday. I'm very optimistic we can do it. But it's not just the engineers of the world that can do it. It's every one of us. So let's see if we could think of a framework to help us all sort this out. Um, but before we do that, you know, Albert Einstein is quoted so much, and I think this quote really says it's so important. We can't get out of this problem by using the same thinking that we did in the past. Um, you know, man, you know, some people would say man's been on Earth for 200 years as homo homo sapiens. We left North Africa to spread out around the world maybe 80,000 years ago. Agriculture was really started about 10,000 years ago. 250 years ago was the big turning point of the Industrial Revolution. Up until that time, man lived off the inventory of energy that was pretty much created at that time from the sun. Then we found a way to tap fossil fuels. First with coal, then with oil, natural gas, and of course we've now gotten into uh, uranium and nuclear energy. All of a sudden, as soon as that, that, that tremendous um, bank of previous uh, sun productivity was tapped into, we jumped ahead. So wh where are we right now? And what could we do? And maybe, maybe we can have some dialogue in a few minutes around this. About 40 years ago, um, a young biologist uh, named Paul Ehrlich at the University of California developed a very simple little relationship. And it stood the test of time. Uh, the, uh, the, the engineering programs at Harvard and, and MIT uh, both call this the master equation. It's used, in, again, in the social sciences, but it really, if you think about it, tells the whole story of what our challenges are. Man's impact on Earth, I, is proportional to population times affluence times technology. Now, I was born um, when there was about two and a half billion people on Earth. This year will be seven billion. So within my lifetime, the population has tripled. So P has gone up significantly. The demographers now say, because as, as countries get more affluent, the birth rate goes down, they're now kind of predicting maybe uh, by 2050 we'll level out at nine. So we're about to go from seven to nine. That's gonna increase uh, man's impact on Earth. The second term is affluence, basically income per GDP. Uh, the United States is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, not the wealthiest, but on a per capita basis, we're right up there with the Scandinavian countries and Switzerland. Uh, but if you look around the world, you see it every day. The world's largest automobile market is no longer the United States, it's China, India, Brazil, all these countries. The A factor is going up substantially. On a global basis, A is going up around 4 to 5% a year. So, look out 20 years. And we've got a situation where P is going to continue to go up, A is going up, and all of a sudden, the only way to offset that is by dramatically decreasing the impact of all the technology we have in the world. So that means 
60 mile an hour, uh, mile per gallon cars. It means zero energy buildings. It means whole new ways of doing things. Um, so, so this little representation, I think, captures a lot of what is going on in the world today. The conventional worldview that's been around probably since World War II or maybe earlier is that the solution is technology. Um, there was a couple books in the 70s that were very instrumental in the environmental movement. One was called The Population Bomb, that some of you may have read. There was a whole group of studies that came out of MIT called The Limits of Growth. Uh, people were talking catastrophe in the 70s. It didn't happen. The green revolution in agriculture was able to feed most people in the world. But I'm not sure we can duplicate that going forward. So we have an economic transformation that has to occur in our society, in our global economy, in the lifetimes of the people in this room. Most people that really look at this think we have to decrease T by 90%, which means from an energy standpoint, we have to start using 0.1 gallons that we now use a gallon for, or whatever the issue is on clothing, or whatever the relative statistic might be. So I think this really helps set the tone. I use this in my classes, and I go back to it, and it's really kind of never failed us. It helps put the perspective on what we're doing. So what's religion's role in this? Um, I think we need to move into an era of sustainable consumption or responsibility society that we start to learn what are the impacts of what we do. Most of us are completely oblivious to what happens. Uh, uh, he, he, for example, here on campus, uh, I forgot to bring it up, but the one-use water bottles. How many people have, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many people either have with them or have used today a one-use water bottle, disposable water bottle? I bet there's a lot of people. That is a completely fabricated market. It didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago. We use 30 billion throwaway water bottles a year. Only 30% of them are recycled. Here on campus, one of my student groups did an assessment of um, using aluminum water bottles or, or one-use one plastic. The university sells 30,000 water bottles a year, just on campus, plus what the students bring from off campus. We did a little Google survey of students and said, would you start using the more long-term you know, long plastic or aluminum? <coughs> and they said, yes, but there's one impediment. We don't trust the, the, high, the hygiene factor of the water fountains on campus. So we came up with a program that cost about $20,000 to put six of them in. And we would have what they call hydration stations, which are simple, straightforward. You don't put your mouth near them. You fill water bottles from them. So there is a simple solution um, that might be right in front of us that some of us might want to entertain. We've looked at the uh, uh, hand, hand dryers in, in, in the uh, bathrooms. Some of you have seen those noisy um, air dryers versus paper towels. The environmental impact of the paper towels is almost 10 times the environmental impact of that little hot air dryer. So there's numerous examples, and my students have done about 100 evaluations in the last three years. But I'm just trying to put a little bit of context on today. And this quote from um, Dr. Kaza at the University of Vermont, in my way, starts to put things in perspective. We conserve water not because we conserve water not because we should uh, be frugal, but because we respect the Earth's resources. This shift in thinking and understanding can be quite profound. The 
conversation moves from personal sacrifice to real consideration of the nature of our connection to the earth. And I think a lot of Western religions, including uh, Christianity, have, have kind of thought of man's dominion over the earth, that the earth is here to serve our needs. And I think we need to, to move into a new era of thinking much more of an interdependent model where we realize we're part of nature. We can't beat nature. I mean, look at the horrific problems in, uh, of, that occurred with um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. That damage was completely avoidable. We had 30 to 50 miles uh, at one time of pristine wetlands that were south of the city. And anybody who modeled that would tell you that wave front would never have hit the city if those wetlands were still in place. But mankind, without knowledge, or maybe sometimes with knowledge, cut channels, completely degraded that, that pristine area of several thousand acres of wetlands. So if we had understood the value of those, we may have acted differently, and we wouldn't have had those terrible loss of property and life uh, and so forth. So I think we all need to realize with 7 billion of us this year, according to National Geographic's recent cover article, going to nine with affluence increasing. The only way to offset it at one level is technology. But I think we've also got to ask ourselves what we consume, how much is enough, what we all need. Uh, we live in, again, this luxury of, of the United States of America. Other people on Earth don't have anywhere near that. And what's going to happen with the future generations? So that was, those were my comments to kind of set some context for my personal area of interest and expertise, and uh, I think Dr. Beck will give us his perspective, and then we'll be glad to answer some uh, questions. So I want to take a rather broad view of technology innovation in this Christian context and tie it into what we all know, and that's that computers are everywhere. Uh, so to understand the Christian context from sort of my viewpoint, I want to think of it as being worldwide and multi-denominational. Probably pretty well explained uh, uh, foundation by the Apostles' Creed. So let me show you a couple of examples that I have of Christian context. Uh, this is the women's choir at the Matero Congregation in uh, Lusaka, in Zambia. Uh, this is a strong and growing co congregation. Uh, you don't see much computing and uh, other technology there, um, but it's probably hidden. They probably all have cell phones in their pockets. Uh, here's the Christian context for a number of Villanova students. Uh, they work and thrive around this area. Uh, I'm showing buildings because that's something that's demonstrable as a Christian context. 
recognizing that what goes on inside is really the important part. This is St. Paul's Church. Uh, it's in Kitwe in Zambia. Uh, it's the center and hope for many in the neighborhood. Uh, in fact, uh, it's improving the foundation for their new church is in. They, in December, they've laid the slab for the new church. Uh, the problem is now getting enough money to afford the blocks to build the walls. Uh, this is a local church. This is Valley Forge Presbyterian Church. I cite it because it's a church where technology has really influenced its path. Uh, because it sits in King of Prussia, its use and its community is governed by how well technology in the community is doing. So when General Electric and Lockheed Martin are doing well, the community is prospering. Uh, when they're not doing so well, the community is not prospering as well, and the church is perhaps not prospering as well. So to look at the technological innovation, let's focus on a little bit on computing and its role as we live in this knowledge society that is evolving in the 21st century. Uh, so let me give you a short history of computational innovation. Uh, maybe the First thing that we think about is the public era of electronic computing, in, dating from 1946. And as an aside, there's a very good uh, documentary uh, film out right now called Top Secret Rosies, uh, produced and directed by a uh, filmmaker from Temple University. Uh, it raises a lot of interesting questions about technology and computing uh, deals with the women who did the uh, computing before the ENIAC was available in the Second World War. Uh, maybe the next major milestone for us as general consumers of computing was the personal computer. Uh, so only about 30 years ago. Uh, and the useful internet less than 20 years ago, uh, and the smartphone about four years ago. But these are the things that are driving the technological innovation and our understanding of what computing can do for us. Right now is a good time to talk about the question that the panel has been asked. Uh, there's now a national debate about core competencies for K-12 education and the question about technology and specifically about computing in these competencies. Uh, this has then inspired the computing community to come up with seven big principles of computer science. The one that's important to us is the one that says innovation is enabled by computing, and that computing significantly affects our, our communication, our cognition, and our interaction with one another. 
So I'm particularly concerned, as you've heard, about uh, human-computer interaction and the newer version of that, which is how the users themselves feel about the user experience. Maybe a key component in our Christian approach to this is our stewardship. And we know that we're supposed to be stewards of our time and our talents and our money. So with our computing, we certainly are able to save time. And one possibility for the use of this saved time is enabling more community service, uh, perhaps enabling us to solve some of the, um, the problems that Bill was just talking about. On the other hand, it also enables us to spend more time in perhaps helping the angry birds in their little war against uh, their enemies. Uh, technological innovation also means that we're spending money uh, because we're all enticed to go to the latest upgrade and the smartest phone that we have. So one of the things that we need to discuss in a Christian context is whether we really need to do that or should we save our money and therefore enable us to support some of the charitable efforts of our church. Uh, another example of our uh, stewardship of money that technology has actually helped is the fact that uh, right now I can, with a few clicks of a mouse, uh, loan $50 to a woman who is setting up a sewing business in Kenya and needs some more raw materials. So the technological innovation allows me to use my resources to help her. And sharing our talents, we can do remotely. <coughs> We don't have to be right at the site where we're working. We can build this website remotely. We can manage the project remotely. Uh, your presence in solving a problem is really only limited by how fast your internet connection is, and maybe the internet connection on the other end. One of the things that our technology does, our computing does is allow these closer connections among people. So we get to know rapidly the joys and concerns of our friends. Uh, we get to be able to react quickly and support quickly. Uh, and there are, of course, a number of examples that come up every day in the news about this. The whole idea of crowdsourcing is one that has taken off because we are so connected through our computing. Uh, there are, I'll put up the three interesting examples that uh, come out of Carnegie Mellon University right now, and the fellow Louis Van An, who you may or may not have heard of, uh, he has decided that he can use the fact that there are these millions of people that have computers and time to do things with their computers, maybe not playing Angry Birds. Uh, and so 
he's developed ways to correct document scans. That's what you're doing in sometimes when you use a little capture thing. Uh, he set up a game to capture images. There are a huge number of images that Google provides for you. A lot of them aren't captioned, so it takes a human to know what they are. Um, but he has a game set up and is working hard to get a huge number of the Google images captured. Wikipedia, of course, has a large amount of information in it. Most of that information is in English and not in another language. He's set up a way for you to learn a different language and also to translate Wikipedia at the same time. So the, this idea of using our technology to do crowdsourcing for the good is an example of the benefits of this technology. If you look at the Masala church in Lusaka, uh, you can tell this is a church with a very primitive meeting space. Uh, the floor is dirt, the benches are um, simply a plank over a couple of logs. Uh, but even at those services, the people need to be reminded not to use their cell phone and not to text. So the connectivity and the, the interest that others have in wanting to uh, be in touch exists sort of wherever you are. I don't know whether you knew God had a Facebook group, but he does. Uh, this is a Facebook group that has been set up. Well, one person decided God needed a Facebook group. That's all you need to set up a group on uh, Facebook. And you can explore later on as to what the goal of this group is. God has some smartphone apps. You may have run across some of these. Uh, you can get uh, some leadership in praying. Uh, you can get your iPhone to hear your confession. And of course, there are a large number of uh, versions of the Bible that have been available for small devices for a long time. Uh, and perhaps later we can work on some other smartphone apps that uh, use the power of the little device that you have in your pocket. Uh, and I'd like to finish by showing you a way that we actually tell God's story here with technology. Assuming all of this works. Never hope for technology to hear you out.
the computer locked up, so we won't have to do the demonstration later. I'll tell you about the total width technology. Uh, you may or may not be aware that there is a uh, partnership between Villanova and the Vatican, especially the uh, communication department and the computing sciences department. We've done a number of, of virtual tours, and the thing that I was going to show you was the uh, virtual tour of the Sistine Chapel that is enhanced with an overlay that describes the artwork that is there. So that you can, if you want to understand the story of Christianity as depicted in the Sistine Chapel, uh, you can go there and read the comments now, this one is not quite online yet. The Vatican Museum is still working to get the rest of the commentary done. But as soon as it is, it will be posted. The tour without the commentary is available now on the Vatican website. The photography was done by the Villanova folks and the bringing together of the chapel. So we will now I guess assemble as a panel and see what we can do to answer your questions. Thank you, Doctor. Will anybody break the ice? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dr. Lenz, for you, have you thought about uh, possibly changing all the university lights to uh, motion activated as to save some power? Uh, I think there's a, there's a study being done right now to look at all the lighting on campus, to look at moving from incandescent to either complex fluorescent or LED. The motion detectors are being looked, uh, looked at. There's a whole technology review underway right now. Because in Pennsylvania, some of you may know that we're under a deregulation uh, for, for electric power. It's going to cost more, and the impacts on campus are, are quite significant. So it's one of those actions that not only is the right thing to do, but it saves money. So I think there's going to be a complete, thorough undertaking of reducing the electrical footprint through lighting. Let me see if I can put some perspective. I just have a, I have a group of students right now looking at eyeglasses versus contact lenses to try to answer your question through an example. How many people here wear contacts? So at least 50 percent. Uh, when we did an assessment of owning eyeglasses for a certain amount of time versus contacts, you wouldn't believe the environmental imp negative impacts of contacts versus eyeglasses because of the packaging, because of the recycling. The current generation of contact lenses is just disposable. 
So whether you wear it for a day or a week. So we have some reconfiguring to, in, in many areas, of what we buy, how we buy. There is a lot of interest in recycled materials. Uh, we have a professor here, Dr. Ross Lee, who is a retiree from DuPont, and he's informed us of sustainable packaging alternatives. So you make a package out of a cellulosic material, and when it goes into a landfill, it degrades in a week. So I think there's a lot of things underway, and again, it gets back to each and every person in this room. If you have the knowledge, maybe you'll change your habits. I don't know how many people would convert from contacts to eyeglasses, but if you think about that simple decision, most of you, I would guess, didn't even think about those implications when you converted or started using them years ago. So recycling is a big step forward. At my home, uh, we have single source recycling right now. Anybody here have single source at their home? Uh, couple. And it's just dramatically different. You know, you, you put all your recyclables into one 90-gallon can, and then your non-recyclables go into trash. And first of all, it's sobering how much of our, tra of our trash is recyclable if we would only peel it apart. And there's a program now where that is put into a recycling program, and we actually get credit for that. We actually get points that are worth money for the amount that we recycle. So I think there's a lot underway. Uh, one thing I would suggest you be mindful of is packaging. It is a tremendous as negative aspect of what we buy right now. Uh, we have some packaging because of security, but other times we may not need as much packaging as is really there. Yes? Something simple we could all do is just refuse to participate in plastics, like plastic bags at CVS or, or grocery stores or whatever. You know, just bring your own bag, like in Europe, and you do our shopping, and, you know, not have those ubiquitous plastic bags that leave the oceans. Good example. If you go to Whole Foods or you go to other places like, uh, yeah. um, if you go to Whole Foods or other stores, they actually give you a credit if you don't use a, uh, a paper bag. And again, these things all add up. If we all changed our behavior, it would at least be a beginning. Oops, and there it went. We're going to bring it up here. We'll bring it up there. There we go. And the thing that I was going to suggest is that you can use the crowdsourcing idea to entice some of your friends, all of your friends and your community to act on these ideas. Thank you for your presentations. Um, just a little bit of historical perspective and uh, just a slight corrective. I'm sure when Alexander Graham Bell, uh, you know, uh, trotted out his uh, new invention, the, the question came out, could I go to confession over the telephone? And uh, the answer to that was most definitely not. Uh, the uh, I Confess app is not a confessional portal. Uh, it's a guide for uh, examining one's conscience. So I just wanted to make that uh, and that little clarification, uh, the Vatican itself was very clear on that. It's, uh, you can't use it uh, for confession. <laughs> I have a question. I'm a little confused about the disposal of the, uh, the light bulbs we're supposed to be using now. 
At first, I thought they contained mercury and they were they were to be disposed of when you had the toxic waste things. Now they, some of them, I think, say you can throw them in the trash. Can you clarify that for me? Well, if, if it's an incandescent, you can put it in the trash. If it's a compact, compact fluorescent, they recommend, because of the mercury, that you take it back to Home Depot or Lowe's or people like that. And again, this is an example, if I can. I had this group of students just do this. And this is the concept of product durability. An LED light lasts 25 times as long as an incandescent light, the old-fashioned light bulb. A CFL lasts three and a half times longer. So when you look at the environmental impact of an LED light and a compact fluorescent and an incandescent, you need 25 of one bulb to equal one of another with all the packaging, transportation, other impacts. I believe the mercury thing's been, if you're willing to take it to uh, a brand name store that will accept it, which more and more are doing it now, um, you can take it to that. How you did that, and because I took a, That was probably a fluorescent, you, well, you held it up this way, yeah. that's a fluorescent, that's a long tube fluorescent light. That one was up there. That, that, yeah, right. Uh, but again, it's that understanding of the issues. Uh, there's a book out called Ecological Intelligence by a psychologist named Daniel Goleman. He's the one that coined the phrase EQ or, or uh, uh, emotional intelligence. And he has a concept of radical transparency and he's convinced if people like you, people like us, understand the consequences of our behavior, we will change. But if you don't know some of these things, you don't have the information to change. So it's starting to happen, and of all people, Walmart, who most people would think is not a leader, has really taken the lead globally for doing some tremendously positive things. And of course, they're making more money out of it and building their reputation but they have moved ahead with a whole sustainable products initiative and some very other interesting things to do. I was struck by a, a common thread across the, the, the presentations. Um, you know, there, there often seems to be an assumption that religion and, uh, and, and science um, or religion and technology might have a natural hostility um, but uh, it seemed to me the case that for all three of you, um, there was no such uh, operating assumption and that in fact um, uh, there, there was an understanding that rather than uh, creating a, a challenging environment in which uh, scientific exploration or innovation could occur, that what um, a, a set of religious commitments does is um, to help provide a more discriminating context for those things to, to happen. I, I'm, I'd like to invite each of you maybe to, to speak to that um, briefly. Okay, I guess I'll start. Um, I completely agree, I think, especially in the um, medical and biomedical field. A lot of people go into it because you might have liked engineering, like I am a traditional chemical engineer and I like traditional chemical engineering topics, but I found it much more fulfilling to work on 
um, bigger issues than refining more petroleum. So I think you, you, it's a natural fit for someone uh, with a strong faith to go into these things. And it just provides a nice framework to always keep in mind there's more than the bottom line to my design. I shouldn't ever push it forward until I'm really sure that it's ready. Um, so I find that it is an easy natural fit. I'm interested in the idea that uh, you know computing has provided all of this ability to communicate with one another, but the original uh, forces that got people thinking about better computation were actually somewhat evil forces. You know, the ENIAC was developed to do ballistics tables. Uh, the internet was developed to allow the Defense Department to communicate with various people. But more recently, things that we've done, like Facebook, uh, was done to get in contact with one another. You know, a, a much less, quote, evil way of going about doing things. It's interesting to see this field mature. I, I agree that a religious, a moral, ethical perspective really helps the engineer, the scientist, to see the big picture. I think what I've seen over the years, people get in trouble when they look at something too narrowly. They only look at an issue in its micro sense. And when they open up to look at the social and economic issues, as well as the technical and environmental, in my case, it really helps. And what we're finding in the sustainable engineering program here, we take young engineers and scientists into it, and all of a sudden their view of the world opens up. And most times it creates kind of an introspection in a religious context. Thank you. Last call for questions or comments? Yeah, please. Do the students have any reason to doubt the quality of water in the water fountains? <laughs> I don't have the knowledge to tell you that. I do not believe so. I, I believe that the quality of the water is fine. Um, but if somebody is just sick and has put their mouth or something on that or their hands, there could be a hygienic issue, not so much around the quality of the water, but around the device itself. They've actually... They've actually done studies on this, and the, the angle that the water shoots out, as long as it's arcing out, it's coming out at a high enough force that you're not picking up any of the germs. So as long as you don't put your mouth on the fountain, you're fine. And you're more likely to cross-contaminate your water bottle and get sick if you use one of those big cooler dispensers. The lip of your water bottle refilling, touching that, and the next person's touching it is more likely to contaminate your water than the water fountain. And the public water here is pretty good, so I wouldn't be worried about that. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's all in their head. It's somebody else's. If you read the bottle, the bottled water is some other city's um, public water. So. We, uh, I've had uh, several student groups 
do this kind of assessment, and we brought a taste test into class, and we had two tap water samples, one from campus and one from somebody's home, and three bottled water samples, and nobody could tell any difference. It's a completely manufactured issue. Uh, it's just, it's a very profitable business with high environment, negative environmental impact, the bottled water business. It's no healthier for you or better than most tap waters. We've got two more uh, back here. Mine is a very, can you hear? Mine is a very broad question. Uh, this whole panel and today's discussion has been very elucidating about uh, how technology is really addressing essentially eschatological issues, whether it's in human life, tech, in the, uh, technology, um, uh, computing sustainability. And so, if, as Professor Lawrence said, if uh, the prevailing assumption today is that technology is the solution because that's where human knowledge can have an impact. Uh, if technology is the solution, why should we be bothering with these ethical questions and problems and contextualizing it in that sense when that's only going to slow down getting to the solution, whether it's biomedical, computational knowledge, uh, or environmental? I guess in my field, I think you always need to be careful, especially in the biomedical field, because that's where you can get too narrow and with your grand thought of, but I'm getting to the solution, and sometimes the means to get to your solution isn't worth it. So I think it's still worth slowing down and really taking caution in some of these things, because especially in the biomedical field, you start to get into, at what point are you playing God? by replacing all these things. Right, yeah, and that, that's what becomes difficult then to assess. Yeah, let, let me see if I could comment. Uh, what I'm finding as we go down this sustainable journey is when we bring in these moral, ethical, religious issues, you make better decisions. I don't think it's slowing us down at all. Um, I also don't think technology is the total solution. I think we all as individuals have to, you know, consume differently and, and, and make changes in our lives. Um, so I, I, I'm finding, again, in a student context, uh, just a real quick example, we did an analysis of the De Beer diamond mine uh, uh, operations in Botswana. And when you looked at it from a technology standpoint, that was one answer. But when you looked at the social and economic and some of the ethical issues, you realized that the company was completely putting their thumb on the whole country and that there was not the proper social equity and social justice balance. If you don't look at those kind of issues, you can't make informed decisions to try to change it. So at least my experience has been when you look at the broader issues and bring in the religious perspectives, you actually make better decisions. Got one final question. Yeah, my question is sort of about the specificity of, of, of claiming sort of religious problems here. So in other words, um, it seems like a lot of panels are talking about sort of broader ethical moral questions. So for instance, well, as a biomedical engineer, I want to make sure that the, the goals I have are aligned with the goals of the patients that are. Um, and for instance, from perspective, well, one of the claims is one thing we can do is recognize that we are part of it. We're not sort of separate from or somehow dominant above or uh, using nature. In fact, we're, we're sort of part of it. So we're part of a larger network of either ecosystem or, um, or what have you. 
Um, and I'm wondering why specifically Christianity, or, or if I, I don't know if that was actually that was the claim you wanted to make, so in other words, it's a general religious sort of viewpoint. Um, and I guess especially if you will admit that, for instance, uh, Christianity, particularly the remaining of Genesis, might say we're not part of nature, that we have uh, you know, more than dominion over nature. Well, wouldn't that either A, require change in the way one is a Christian woman, or B, why not just say we can have a general sort of ethical moral standpoint that's not necessarily specifically religious or specifically Christian? So I, I don't know. Can we get the same results just having a sort of Ethical picture, uh, my personal opinion is I don't think it has to be uniquely a Christian focus at all. It can be uh, a, a very broad focus. I, I've been following something personally. I don't know how many people know of or, or have done anything with Karen Armstrong. She has a new global movement around this Charter for Compassion, which is pers was purposely developed by Hindus and Christians and, and Muslims. And that core idea of, of the golden rule seems to be a way to implement a lot of this. That if you really think of it that way, and we think of it in the broadest ecosystem or global context, I think we can make a lot of decisions. It doesn't have to be based on anything uniquely Christian at all. That's a personal opinion. I'm not a, just a person. <laughs> you know, and certainly, a number of the things that I talked about, including the crowdsourcing, you know, has no real uh, specific connection into Christianity. You're, you don't, if your crowd is working for the good of something, you really don't care about their religious beliefs. I guess my answer is kind of along with both of these in that um, it doesn't necessarily, for me personally, stem from it has to be a Christian or a Catholic belief. It just happens to be what I was raised with. But when I step back and try and evaluate where my ethical opinion comes from, it usually, my opinion and my idea of morality came from what I was taught from the church. So to me, the, the ethics and the morality in the church went hand in hand. Uh, one final comment. Yeah, I asked the prior, the gentleman from the earlier lecture this, but I was just curious. Uh, you referenced crowdsourcing, and I mentioned that I just got back to putting a solar arrays on houses in one of the poorest counties in the nation. And the idea is that once these arrays start to pay back, they have to contribute whatever money they save to putting solar arrays on other houses. So we're starting this sort of new division thing. But in the process, we needed to get our hands on space age clock. We got a grant for photovoltaic cells, but we needed aluminum tubing and special glass. It seems to me that there is a you know a mission. There's a lot of missions that have different needs, and is there any source where there's like a central source that would be a, a place to go and say, hey, we need space age clock. Somebody in Minnesota's uncle can, you know, say, "Hey, I have access to this." But the interesting thing about that possibility, and I believe this is what crowdsourcing is, maybe, that it would draw in not just people from the church, but people outside the church who are interested in, you know, the green movement. Suddenly, see, there's a group of Christians that are, 
putting these solar arrays on houses in the forest communities. Um, and then we're also working for the same common good, but we're also drawing people into the church, which is important. Um, are you aware of any? I'm, I'm not aware of any, but uh, I'm sure that if we floated the idea to someone, they would be happy to build a website and uh, solve the problem. This seems to be the solution to a lot of these. Let's build a website and get people aware of what's happening. I think you're, you're touching on a, a really important issue. I just had solar PV put on my house. Just, I paid for it. Um, but when you look at the alternatives, depending upon what part of the country you're in, solar PV could replace coal-fired electricity or could you know, replace whatever the context is, nuclear, whatever. Um, the idea of finding sources of funding so people can do this and roll their benefits over to others, and if churches can come together to do this, is just terrific. I do think that Habitat for Humanity does a lot of this. They're getting into renewables now. Um, and there's something called the NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, if you go on the on web at NREL, they have all those kind of what ifs, different type products that have the lowest impact to use. So there is a good bit of information that's starting to emerge out of people's work together. Um, if, if I could just um, draw things to a close by and connect um, some threads, because I don't want them to get lost. I want to go back to the, the question about um, why religious. Uh, uh, why a religious context, and would that make any 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 difference? Um, uh, I think religious approaches to ethics have to validate themselves, like any approach to to ethics. And um, across the earlier papers today, uh, we had arguments about how religious traditions, and in particular um, Christianity, because of just the context that we're working in here, um, can can do that. And uh, you know, this, this morning it was the idea that technology is an exercise of human power. So one of the things that Christianity does is it gives us symbolic and narrative resources in order to help us understand that the exercise of power should be in the service of respecting and enhancing life, not just for the maximization of power because we can, right? Can doesn't mean that we may or that we should, much less that we, that we ought. Um, so that's one benefit and one way in which um, there's an interpretive framework that a, a religious ethic can provide that helps us to um, focus on the direction of how we exercise power. And then even just in the, 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 the previous paper, um, um, Dr. Kakamo was talking about the use of various forms of information and internet technologies, and then he talked about virtue. <laughs> So this goes back to the, is there just a technological fix? If in fact we can't rely simply and solely on technology to give a fix, if some kind of internal transformation is necessary so that we make choices to lead more sustainable lives, for instance, well then things like the virtues uh, facilitate that kind of interior transformation, that moral formation that then positions us to be more discriminating um, and, and, and wiser and more just in our appropriations and our uses of, of technology. Um, so that doesn't in any way rule out non-theological um, um, uh, approaches to morality, but, but religious traditions are still around because they're full of all sorts of rich resources and a whole lot of uh, time-tested uh, um, wisdom. Uh, and in bringing these to bear, um, 
uh, I think we get access, as we saw in the earlier talks today, that speak to some of the questions that, that, that have emerged. Um, I want to thank our panelists for... <laughs>